There was a lot of murder in the days of Noah. A man named Lamech, who was the great, 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 great grandson of Cain, who killed Abel, was out one day, and a young man came to him and started talking bad about him and slighting him and coming against him, and so Lamech murdered the boy. Lamech went back to his family, his wife, and his three sons, and he told the tale of what he did. He said, I killed a man for talking about me. I slayed a young man for turning against me. Then he said this, just as God said that he would have vengeance on anyone who touched our great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain seven times, anyone who messes with Lamech and his family will be avenged 77-fold. See, in Lamech's family, a culture had come in where God's mercy and grace had been perverted and turned into license to do evil. So Cain, who murdered Abel, and when God came to Cain and said, you are going to be in exile in this world, and Cain said, no, God, please, please have mercy on me. God said, okay, if anyone touches you, I will avenge that touching. And so Cain's family created this reputation that if anyone messes with them, God will take them down. Lamech. Lamech, the father of people all over the earth, the farmers, the first farmers, the first artists, the first metal workers, were populating this earth with this mentality that we do what we want to do when God has our back. That we will take down whoever we want to take down and no one messes us because we are on God's side and God will avenge who touches us. This bullying attitude was pervading the culture of all the earth and all these peoples were coming from Lamech. Grandsons of Cain. After Adam and Eve lost their son Abel when Cain murdered him, they had another son named Seth. And at that time, people started to call on the name of the Lord. Maybe God will bring deliverance to us. Maybe God will change the culture of this fighting and this warring and this murder. Maybe God will rescue us from this ground that he has cursed. And Cain and and Seth were brothers, and Seth had kids, and grandkids, and great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids, and all of these descendants, nine generations of Seth emerged, and then a Lamech, a same name, a guy named Lamech comes out of Seth's lineage. And Lamech had a son named Noah. And, and when Noah was born, Lamech said, maybe God will use this son Noah to give us comfort and relief from the ground the Lord has cursed. One side of the family was angry and bitter and claiming to know God, although they had no idea who God was, and they were bringing terror into the world in the name of God. And one side of the family was hoping that God would bring comfort through their descendants and blessing through their descendants, that God would restore the world through Seth's line because Abel was taken by Cain. But alas, in those days, people uh, weren't pure. They married whoever they wanted to marry. And Seth's descendants married Cain's descendants. And Seth's great-grandkids married Cain's great-grandkids. And the whole world became this jumbled mess of people who were following God and people who weren't following God. The world was this crazy place where sin was pervasive. It was coming out of every pore. Like Genesis 6 says, the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And God looked at the world that he had created. And he said, I'm going to set a timer for 120 years. And when it dings, 
these days are over. God couldn't stand for this world where sin was just everywhere. We see in the Noah story that sin is like a cancer. It starts out as this little thing, this little speck, this little mutated good thing that has gone wrong. And yet, like the Bible says, it's like yeast. It's like a seed that's planted and grows and grows and grows. It's like yeast that goes in through dough and spreads and spreads and spreads. It's like a cancer that starts in one place and grows and multiplies and grows and multiplies and takes over all things. And so even though there was a line of Seth that was trying to do good, it was mixed up in the line of Cain that was trying to do evil. And sin was in every person and in every culture and in every community. It was killing the human race. And God looked down and he saw that this cancer had spread through every place and every pore and every lymph node of every society in the earth. And he said, these people need to be put out of their misery. I'm going to destroy this place in 120 years. Some of us have had sin in our life that we know has destroyed us or has tried to destroy us. Sometimes it's like that cancer that needs radiation. You know, there's this spot of sin in our lives and we just need to zap it. We need to take it out and show it to the Lord and let him take it away and be cleansed of it and walk away. We just need a little surgery and that sin can be taken out and then we're clean again. Sometimes our sin is like that kind of cancer. But sometimes our sin is like the cancer that is described in Genesis chapter 5 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. One that is so pervasive and invasive that more drastic measures need to be taken. In a sense, the story of Noah is like God's chemotherapy where he says, I'm going to rush this poison into the human race and I'm going to kill every moving thing on the ground and hopefully on the other side of this, life can emerge again once the poison kills all that is there. We know that sin is poisonous. We've seen the effects in our own lives. And in the story of Noah, we see God's judgment on the sin in the human race through cleansing of water. You may not know that Noah is not the only flood story in the world. Do you know that? If you go to English literature class or something, you're going to learn that Noah is not even the first flood story in the face of the earth. That every ancient society has a great deluge story of a great flood that the God or the gods has stuck on the human race to kill every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. And so when you go to class and you hear about that, they say these are myths. They're made up. Noah's made up. Just like the Sumerian myth, just like the Babylonian myth, just like every ancient society had a flood story, they're all just made up. But then when you start to read them, you see that they're very, very similar. That all these stories seem to have a lot of the same points in them. That there's a god or there are gods who are displeased with the human race and so they decide to destroy them. And yet one person is able to escape. And they build a boat of some sort. And they get in that boat. And the floodwaters come. And they pop up like a cork on the top of the water. And they live through the flood. And then when the waters start to recede, the boat hits a mountain after a number of days. And the man in the boat sends out birds. And the birds sometimes don't come back. And sometimes they do. And when they don't come back, they know that the floodwaters have receded. And they come out of the boat. They lie to sacrifice to their god or their gods. And then they walk out of that boat and repopulate the earth. That's in every flood story are all the same elements. And so they say, well, maybe they all came from a common background. And it's not Noah, because Noah's not the earliest. The Sumerian one might be the earliest. So maybe the Sumerian myth kind of came out and, and, and the Jewish people took it and said, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to change that and make it about our God. And they created this Noah story. 
But the weird thing is that the, the Noah story, the flood story, the universal flood story exists not only in the people groups around God's people, but all over the earth. In South America and Africa, all over the world, there's this story of a great flood with all of those elements in it. And so when people talk about how can that be, they say, maybe through the evolutionary process, something came into the human psyche that in every community, this common legend of a flood just kind of bubbled out. And so whether you're in South America or you're in Africa or Asia or Europe or North America, wherever you are, human beings have evolved to a place that a flood story just kind of bubbles out of every community. It takes a lot of faith to believe something like that. It's interesting, though, when you read the Genesis account, when you read the, the Bible story of the flood, you see that it wasn't really written to be a history book. And if you read that story through the context and through the lens of thinking, what if God's people knew that every nation knew about this great flood? You kind of read it differently. You read the story thinking that God's people were saying, okay, everyone knows that there was a flood in this world. Everyone knows that there was this great rain that came. And everyone knows the story about the man who escaped it. And everyone has their own version of the story. Let me tell you the real version. Let me tell you who that man really was. Let me tell you about the true man and the true God who saved that man from the flood and the true reason behind the flood story. Because even though this flood story exists in every culture in the world or many cultures in the world... The Noah story is very different than every other story in the world. The Noah story is about a different kind of God and a different kind of man. You know, in every other story, the way that it starts is that the gods in the heavens get irritated at the people on earth. And sometimes they have good reasons. Some of these stories, they're sick of people doing this or that or whatever. And in a lot of the ancient stories, the gods are sick of the people because they're too loud. So it's like if you're a parent and your kids are making too much noise, you're like, ah, oh, let's just drown them, right? That's, that's kind of what most of these flood stories are about. The gods are up playing poker in heaven or something, and they're talking about how they're sick of the human race, and so they devise a plan that they're going to drown every human, every man, woman, child, and animal, and plant on the earth. They're just going to kill them all, and one of the gods says, oh no, this is not good. And so he finds a hero, a hero like Noah with a different name. And he says, I need to whisper to you what the gods are planning so that you can escape. And so he whispers through the walls or he brings the hero up to the walls of where the gods are hanging out so he can listen in and hear about this great flood. And then the hero goes outside of the city and starts building this boat. And a lot of times the hero is pretty, uh, a pretty ingenious kind of guy. He takes the whole town and he says, hey, help me build this boat. And he throws this party and there's beer and there's wine and there's food and everyone's just hammering away. What are we building? I don't know, just build it. And so then this guy just sneaks up in the boat and they close it up and they caulk the door so it stays shut. And then he says, bye-bye. And the floods come down and everyone dies. But bloop, the hero. Almost every story, every story that I read, is about a hero who finds out what the gods are sinisterly planning, and he finds escape, and he thwarts the plan of the gods. It's interesting, what, what you think about your god or your gods affects the way that you live. Imagine if you grew up in a culture where the gods were 
capricious, where they were sick of you, they thought you were too loud, where it was kind of like the varsity crew up in heaven on Mount Olympus or wherever they hang out. And, and if you make too much noise down here, they're just going to drown you. It's a, a lot of fear in that culture. There's a lot of fear in a culture where you think the gods can change their mind at any moment. There's a lot of uncertainty in a culture where some gods think one way and some gods think the other way. There's a lot of trouble in a culture where the gods are just so crazy that they might do anything and they can take you down at a moment's notice because you don't look right to them. It's a, an interesting relationship to have with gods like that. And yet the Noah God is one who looked down at the earth and he saw that it wasn't just there was too much noise down here, but there was sin everywhere. That every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time, like Genesis 6, 5 says. And God says, I'm going to destroy this place because this cancer of sin is not going to stop. You watch it through the generations. You watch it through Cain's line and intersecting with Seth's line and seeing this world creating these people who are all infected with this disease and there's no cure and so we need to put these people out of our misery. Some of us look at our God and we realize that our God is not one who's going to capriciously judge us but our God might be one who's going to drown his people for good reason. And that doesn't make us very comfortable. And some of us live our lives in this fear of God, not this reverent awe of God, but this fear of God that this lightning bolt's going to strike us. That God knows what we're doing. God knows what we're into. God might not like us today because we don't like us today, and so we need to watch our back because he's drowned the people before. He might take you down tomorrow. But the most unique thing that we see about our God in the Genesis account is not that God was sick of sin. But that God, while he was sick of sin, was grieved by sin. This is Genesis 6, 5 and 6 and 7. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now, our God is not merely a God who's in heaven angry and looking to smite his people. God is a God who's looking down at his people, and he is grieved at the state of their hearts and their lives and their world. The Noah story doesn't picture our God as an executioner. It pictures our God as an oncologist. It says, if I'm going to cure this cancer, I'm going to have to take some drastic measures. In all of the pagan stories, after the hero bobs up in the flood and he stops on the mountain and he sacrifices on an altar to the gods, the gods in heaven think, what is that? I thought everyone was dead down there and this sounds, smells good and I'm hungry. There are many humans to feed us in like 40 days. And so the gods come down from the mountain and they find this hero there by a fire and, and they say, we need some of that food. And the hero starts to chastise the gods. They say, how did you escape? He said, let me ask you a question. What are you doing? Why are you destroying these people? He says, if, if you really wanted to take down the evil in this world, why didn't you send a pack of wolves to kill the bad ones? Why don't you send a pack of bears? I don't know if it's a pack of bears, but a 
group of bears to come and kill the bad ones. Why did you have to kill everyone? You silly gods acting capriciously. Look at you just destroying the human race for no reason. And he teaches them and he humbles the gods and tells them, you're stupid, you shouldn't have done this, and the gods have remorse. That's not the Noah story. The God in the Noah story would respond to an accusation like that that he never got from Noah. And he would say, listen, I can't just send a pack of wolves to go and kill the bad humans because human beings were rotten to the core. Every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. Sin pervades everything. It's like going to your oncologist and and saying, you know, I... I think we need to do a massive round of chemotherapy. And you say, well, can't you just do a little surgery? Can you just cut off my arm or something if I've got cancer in my lymph nodes? Or can't, can't you just do some radiation and target it? And the doctor looks at you and says, I don't think you understand. It's, it's way too far gone for that. It's everywhere. It's in every thought. The sin is in every deed. It's in every word. The sin is in every person, in every marriage, in every family, in every household, in every child. And the effects of sin have affected every animal and every plant and every relationship. In all the earth, this cancer of sin is in everything. You can't cut off a piece because it's in the next piece. You can't radiate one person because it's in the next person. You can't zap the bad people because the sin is everywhere. We have to do something more drastic than surgery. Something more drastic than radiation. I was in high school and my best friend was diagnosed with uh, cancer, bone cancer. And kind of found it. He tore his MCL playing hockey and they found this lesion behind his knee. And so we had a knee replacement and some chemo. And then a couple years later it showed up in his lungs. And so... They took out half of his lung and did some radiation and some chemo. And then it showed up in his other lung or the rest of his lungs. And so they went in through his back and they took out more pieces of his lungs and did some chemo and some radiation. And then it came back. The doctor said, okay, can't do any more surgery. You can't just radiate this thing. Can't just do chemo. It's not working. It's not aggressive enough. It's not fighting anymore. And he said, We haven't done this a lot before, but we want to do a stem cell transplant. I said, Well, what is that? He said, Well, we're, we're going to harvest from you some good stem cells. T- take some cells out of you that haven't differentiated yet, they haven't become cancerous yet, and we'll take them out of you, we'll put them in a petri dish, and we'll start to cultivate these good cells that are, that are 100% pure. And And then we're going to dump chemicals into your body. We're going to give you the most massive round of chemo imaginable. It's going to kill every fast-moving cell in your body, every cancer cell, hopefully, but every white blood cell and every red blood cell and every hair follicle, every cell that's growing and multiplying, growing and multiplying, we're going to have to destroy all of them and, and, and hopefully you make it. And we're going to keep you quarantined because you can get really sick really easy because your immune system's down. You're going to be pretty much dead and hanging on. And if once we kill everything, we're going to take those stem cells and we're going to put them back in you. And we're going to hope that they can repopulate your body that's cancer-free. It's the story of Noah. 
And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And like Noah's dad Lamech prayed, let this boy save the world and bring them comfort on the ground that God has cursed. Noah's story is about a man who is pulled out of the world while the rest is just destroyed, everything, and then put back in to repopulate the place. It worked for my friend. Stem cells started to replicate and grow and his hair came back and his white blood cell count went up and his red blood cell count went up and his platelet count went up and the cancer stayed gone. And It was drastic. It was risky. But when there's a cancer that's destroying your body and it's going to take you down, sometimes you have to do something drastic to stop it. You know, the story of the gospel is a lot like the Noah story. It's about one who was perfect, who had no sin in him. The cancer that had come into every human being that ever lived and in every relationship that ever existed and to every tree that ever grew and to every land that was ever grown on or conquered or whatever it was, sin was everywhere. But there was one who was pure, and he was Jesus and yet Jesus got on him the wrath of God for all the rest of the, sin, of the people in the world. And he died, he went into the earth, and then he popped out again alive. Peter tells us that Jesus is the ark on which we need to cling if we're going to be saved from the wrath to come. It's interesting, when we think about the gospel story, and when we read the New Testament authors tell us about the gospel story, they talk about it almost like we're getting into this ark, that judgment is coming, and we need to hide in Jesus, and if we're in there, we're going to bob through the judgment to come. That there is one who died and rose again, and if we can come with him, we'll die too, and then we'll come back to life again, like that chemo, like that stem cell transplant. That when you become a Christian, you die. Ever thought about that? I'm dead and my life is hidden with Christ and God, Paul says. You die. And when you're down there on the ground dead, not literally, but figuratively dead, God takes Jesus and he puts him in you and Jesus starts to grow and permeate throughout you and you come back to life and the cancer is gone and Jesus is there. And while we struggle on this earth, we still feel the effects of sin. and We still feel the inclination towards sin. But we know that the cure is stronger than the disease. And that someday when we die and when the judgment does come, we're in Christ and the floodwaters just wash over us and we're in him bobbing along. And when the wrath subsides, we find ourselves in the world with our King Jesus and we'll populate this place again. And tonight you might find yourself in a state like the people in Noah's day feel like God is after you because you're in sin. Or you feel like you're in this place where the world is upside down and every relationship you have and every person you talk to is just a reminder that this world is broken and you're desperate and you need him. When you think about God, you get kind of scared because you think, okay, if there's a God, he probably doesn't like me very much. It's interesting when the God of the Bible looks down at the humankind, the human race that he's created, and everyone is evil all the time and sin is taking over. He's filled with grief and says, I want to do something to help these people. And he destroys the world and he grows it back again. Maybe that's what God needs to do in you. Jesus says anyone who wants to save his life must lose it. Hand it over to him. And let the floodwaters of baptism wash over you. 
and cleanse the sin away and resurrect to new life, a life that will never end. Tonight, if you find yourself without Jesus, the Bible says without hope and without God in this world, give your life to him. And tell him, I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of this body that I'm in. I'm sick of this life that I'm living. I'm sick of this sin that's destroying me. I read that verse that every thought of every human is always evil all the time. And I think, that's me. I drive down the street and I'm just filled with bitterness and I'm filled with rage and I'm always in a bad mood and I just feel so angry and my friends look at me like I'm crazy and I feel like, I feel like something needs to change. God says, let my waters wash over you and cleanse you. And because of Jesus, it's not the waters of judgment, it's the waters of purity in baptism. If you've never been baptized, that's the next step for you. Give your life to Christ, let him wash you of your sins and give you a new life. And then step into the waters of baptism and show the world that you've been changed. That you went under the water and your life died and you came out and now you're in Jesus and everything is changing. And he's in you and he's growing and the sin is starting to get a little less and the purity is starting to get a little more. And your hope, your hope is here now in him. Tonight as we take communion... We remember the one who died for us. We remember the one who, even though we were all sinful, instead of God destroying the whole world, he destroyed one who conquered the grave and offered life to anyone who believed. For those of you who believe in Jesus, come forward when we start this next song and grab this bread and dip it in this cup and eat of it and remember his body that was given for you on the cross. Remember his blood that was poured out, the blood of a new covenant, a new type of relationship with God where our sins are washed away because one was judged that we don't have to be. And rejoice because the flood is not coming for you. When the flood of judgment comes, you're in Christ and you're safe in that ark of him and you'll live with him forever. Let's pray together and then let's take communion. Father, so many of us uh, feel tonight like we need to be washed clean. We thank you that in Jesus, the story of a flood of judgment has now become floodwaters of baptism and cleansing. That when we go under that water and judgment comes, we're safe in Christ. And when we come out of that water, we have a new life with God. We pray for anyone in here tonight who does not yet know Jesus, that they would cling to him that they would realize that a flood of judgment is coming and they would run to the ark, the body of Jesus, and be saved. And tonight as we take communion, that we would remember that it's not by doing good things that we escape judgment. It's not by being good people that we escape judgment. But as evil people, as sinful people in a broken world, it's Jesus who has escaped judgment for us because he went through it. Let us find freedom in him. Let us come to him and find life. And let us live in a world where we know that you look down upon us not in fury, but you grieve our sickness and you offer us hope that you're not our executioner, but you're our doctor who wants to heal us from this disease that will kill us when we come to you for safety and health and salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.